Welcome to the Integral Stages Author Series. I'm Layman Pascal, and today we're talking with Jonathan Rousset about the metamodern anthology entitled Dispatches from a Time Between Worlds. Full disclosure, I am, like Jonathan, both a contributor and editor of this volume, so I'm completely biased, and you won't be surprised when I tell you that you've absolutely got to buy this book. If you have any interest in understanding metamodern culture, metamodern philosophy, its underlying insights, structures, where it's been, where it's going, its relation to adjacent similar communities such as Integral Theory, Game B, and a host of others, and why we desperately need a metamodern level response to the crises that are the looming ocean iceberg to modernity's Titanic. So, without further ado, if any of what I just said counts as a do, here he is from Perspectiva Press in the British Isles. It's Jonathan Rousen. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Damon. Nice to see you. <laughs> you too. Before we get into anything else, where can people buy this book? They can buy it, as they say, in all discerning bookstores, um, but they can also buy it online. So, it's uh, available via the Perspectiva website. Um, they can also get it via Central Books, which is our main distributor. And we also have uh, various ways of buying it online, including the, the behemoth that shall not speak its name, beginning with A and ending with N. It is also available there. We conceded, we conceded on that point, but quite soon it will be available from various online bookstores, including bookshop.com and things like that too. But in the short term, go via Perspectiva's website. Okay. Tell us about the title. Why is it called Dispatches from a Time Between Worlds? So I, I took exhibit A just to show people here. <laughs> they can see it properly. And then you can see around the, the way the, the word goes around the whole uh, page, the whole um, book. So Dispatches from a Time Between Worlds is the title and Crisis and Emergence in Metamodernity is the subtitle. So where to start with that? Well, it was going to be called the Metamodern Reader. That was, the, that was plan A. Um, and we decided not to do that for various reasons. Uh, one was that for many people, the term Metamodern has a particular meaning that they didn't want to be associated with. For others, uh, the reader concept seems quite modernist. So it's almost like a performative contradiction to be a Metamodern Reader. Uh, you know, this idea of a sort of compendious canon that one ought to read to understand the domain. So for those reasons, we thought of a different title. And around then, Zach Stein, who was one of the sort of early editorial supports, and he has a, he has a chapter in the book, he released his book on education in a time between worlds. And if you look in that book, uh, and at some of his subsequent work, this notion of being between worlds is not trivial. It's not just the kind of poetic mystical notion of somehow being in a liminal space. The idea of being between worlds is that in a time between worlds is actually historiographical in some ways. It's a sort of, it's a, it's a status claim within history. It's saying there's something going on here to do with political, economic and technological factors at scale that mean that one form of organizing the world is in the process of dying and another is not yet quite born. Um, so to say we're in a time between worlds is to, say, is to make a sort of empirical status claim, but it's also this poetic and mystical idea of reckoning, taking stock, of, of wondering what's next, making sense of how we got here. Uh, and then dispatches is a way of sort of, it's from the front line, it's from people who are grappling with this, thinking about it themselves. And we hope this is the first in a series. So this is the, we're dealing with metamodernity initially, 
but we hope in future to move on to other subjects of a similarly capacious uh, quality. So metamodernity and the concept of metamodern is a, it's like a code word a lot of people have been seizing on in the last few years, or maybe a little bit longer, to call out people from an overlapping number of communities, right? There's a lot of game B thing. There's resonances with Cynthiaism. There's integral theory people here. There's meaning crisis people. So metamodern in our sense clearly doesn't refer just to people who self-identify as metamodernists, but to some more nebulous sensibility in the process of clarifying itself. So from your point of view, what is metamodernism and why do a book about it? Okay, I'll very happily answer that. But first, I just want to capture that beautiful line of what was that, an, uh, a, an emerging sensibility that's currently nebulous. I didn't quite get it, but it was beautiful. Whatever it was, play back and hear it. Um, why do a book on metamodernism? Well, partly for the reason you mentioned. It's, it's, uh, I think it was your own idea to say this was about the end of the beginning of metamodernism. And by that, we mean a lot has already been written and said about it some quite formally trying to pin it down theoretically, uh, trying to situate it within various traditions and various literatures, theories, some a bit more uh, status related or identity related about what you're trying to associate with or trying to separate yourself from. I'll come to why do a book about it in a second, but just it's worth just saying that I can see at least five main patterns of meaning of metamodernism, okay? And uh, for that reason, this is one of the reasons to do a book about it, to sort of try to try to make it clear in people's mind, this is not one thing, or insofar as it is, it's many things. The first would be the one that many people come into metamodernism through, which is the Hans D. Freinach books, including the Listening Society and the Nordic Ideology, and I think quite soon forthcoming Secret Patterns of World History or something like that. Um, and that's mainly authored by Daniel and Emil, as we know them, Daniel Gortz and Emil Freis, I think it is. Now, that is a theory of a deliberately developmental society. It's a particular view of how we should run the world, what kind of political response should there be to the world apparently falling apart. And it's it's kind of tries to be post-integral in some way. It's trying to be a normative vision of society uh, with lots of discussions along the way about different theories they're including or not including uh, and then, you know, a framework of a uh, new political system and uh, some early pointers about how to get there. Now, for many people, that is metamodernism. It comes from a particular author, but it's by no means the whole story. Uh, and, and it'd be a bit of a tragedy if you thought that that was all there was to it. Prior to that, and in some ways more fundamental, there was, there was a big research program that was, it was it has a kind of its own prehistory, but it was kicked off by... Uh, Van den Acker and Van Vermeulen, these young, fairly young Dutch, they're not exactly Dutch theories. I think some of them were based in London when they did it, but they have a sort of Dutch connection of some kind. And they, they were working in the field of sort of literary theory, cultural analysis. Um, a lot of it is kind of art criticism, literary criticism of various kinds. And they saw patterns emerging in the culture. They were looking at metamodernism more like what are these new films? What are these new pieces of artwork? What are these new books? They seem to be somewhat different. So that would be everything from films, films where there's something more than postmodernism going on, where it seems that there's still the same kind of irony and perspective taking and self-referential nature, 
but it goes beyond the just kind of ha 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 look at me there's some kind of inherent depth or beauty or something significantly meaningful is happening as well and and they there's a huge research literature there and you can find that online uh, what is metamodernism.com i think it is and that's an entirely separate body of work from the hansi work and hansi actually said that he kidnapped that term so what was really going on with hansi was he was trying to say I want to speak about a deliberately developmental society and I want to build political capital around it. Now, how do I do that? What kind of name can I give that? Oh, metamodernism. That's not doing enough work in that cultural academic silo. Let's bring it to bear in the world of, I don't know, system building, institution building, movement building. That sort of took off. So those two are the sort of two of the main players, but I mentioned five. Prior to that, and in some ways, I think the neglected one and one of the more important ones is something unearthed principally by Brent Cooper in references to metamodernism in Jose, uh, Gonzalez, I forget his first name, Hontas or something like that, Gonzalez and uh, Albert Borgman, both kind of either technology theorists or in the case of Borgman or more like a, a sort of liberation theologian in the case of Gonzalez. Their, their take on metamodernism is quite different. Their sort of, the way to understand them, and I think this is one of the best ways to understand metamodernism is as a kind of alternative to hypermodernism, or it's a way of trying to reclaim the human in a world where technology is out of control. And I'll come back to some finesses in each of these, but then in addition to that, you've got the kind of, what you mentioned earlier, alluded to earlier, people who use the term as an umbrella reference point for those people who are somehow mm, thinking across disciplines, across domains, are thinking of civilization as a whole, who have some kind of interest in interiority or spirituality in some way and see that as relevant to renaissance of society at large. So that, so, so metamodernism as a kind of organizing pattern for a diverse range of actors who have in common some notion of going beyond the normal. So a sort of post-conventional impulse is another way of describing it. So there are four. And the fifth, um, I don't know it yet that well, but there's an author, uh, Jason, Storm or Strom, I forgot which, which it is, but um, he's just released a book with the University of Chicago coming out quite soon. And that's an almost entirely theoretical look at metamodernism. He, it's a way of doing theory for him. So in the academic world, who are a bit stuck about what theory means today, he's got a whole new way of thinking about it, which he calls metamodernism. So that's quite a lot, right? In terms of the take-home points for the listeners, I would say the way to see it is this. It's partly about the relationship between modernism and postmodernism. If you care about that relationship, it's about what emerges from that kind of coupling. Uh, is there a birth child? Is there a love child of those two dysfunctional parents? It's partly about what's after postmodernism. So for those who are looking at kind of like what's next, it's partly an antidote to hypermodernism. Um, and in addition to that, it's a kind of organizing concept for social movements. And it may also be a, a sort of term in, in the academy either for studying culture or for doing theory. So and it I, seems I, like there would be a lot of people who would be fascinated by all that stuff, uh, but also a lot of people for whom advanced forms of cultural theory may not be too relevant. Yeah. But there's this other side to it. There's the ethical urgency of how metamodern style approaches can grapple with what we've been calling the meta crisis. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why, that's why this, right? So that which is the which was the second part of your question I didn't quite get to. 
Why write a book about it? Well, because we live in urgent in urgent times. I mean, um, I think you know, Layman, that I'm a little weary of overemphasis of crisis as premise. You know, I, I grow tired of the world is in great crisis, therefore we must do X, Y, or Z. Just because it's sort of a truism now at some level, but also because those who say it often live lives that are very far from crisis. So there's something about it that doesn't ring altogether true. But what we need, I think a lot of people intuit that what we need today is some combination of significant systemic understanding of civilizational forces at scale. So world system dynamics understanding combined with deep interiority, grasp of the psyche, practice-based approaches to cultivating the self in some way, combined with this rich understanding of what's going on at scale and bringing them together in some kind of societal discourse, some kind of way of talking that's different, that pushes the dial on ways of making sense of things. Um, so Perspectiva that publishes this book and that the organization I run, our shorthand for that is systems, souls, and society. And I think the reason to, metamodernism is not that as such, but you know, it's one way of understanding what it's about. It's about trying to integrate those diverse bodies of knowledge and practice in order to, to build things. So it's to get beyond critique and in some ways even beyond vision, because frankly, there's lots of vision out there into method. So it's some kind of critique meets vision meets method as a way of framing the problem space and introducing some possible, not exactly solutions, but sort of ways forward, reorientations, shifts in perception. So the contributors to this volume are all people who are uh, trying to think or feel their way forward into either unexplored facets of what we might generally call metamodernity or specifically into these methodological bridges that might move from new insight and new theory into some kind of action that could grapple with what's going on. Maybe you could give us a sense of the layout of the book and, and who are the contributors to this volume. Okay, well, there are, um, I believe there are 12 chapters and 14 authors, because there's two double, two uh, co-authored chapters. Um, and it begins with a kind of synoptic overview. So uh, I wrote this essay called Tasting the Pickle, which is my own attempt to go a bit, go a bit beyond the language of metacrisis, trying to really understand. I personally don't think it's coherent to speak of the metacrisis. I think because meta means so many things, it's inherently plural. And therefore, the challenge is to sort of play with that plurality and see it in its fullness as something we live and breathe and change rather than this fixed object of inquiry that we have to sort of solve or tackle. So the tasting the pickle is about that, what that's all about. And then there's a chapter by Bonita Roy, which is a very deep philosophical chapter about the need for a different kind of mind to deal with the Anthropocene broadly conceived, the need for a new view of causality, a new take on time. And, you know, it's a kind of process, it's a kind of process philosophy view of the world as a complete shift in coming to terms with where we are. And she ends the chapter with a beautiful, beautiful reference to, to being uh, improvisers. We are the extemporeans, she says. And we're people who have to, you know, when we look back at who are we, we're sort of making it up. We're the people who have to somehow make it up now. Her chapter details why that's the case. Then we have another lovely overview chapter by Jeremy Johnson, who some of you will know, he runs various podcasts online and uh, is a great Gebser scholar, but his, his chapter is about the planetary, the idea of the planetary 
and people may have come across this term quite a few times, I asked them just to sort of detail, what do you mean by the planetary? Because we hear about the global quite a lot, but the planetary is something a little bit different. It's a sense of this fragile biosphere combined with this somewhat more cosmic perspective of the planet in space, as opposed to a world that we traverse on planes and, you know, through countries and so forth. So those first three chapters kind of set the overview of like the scope of the inquiry, the scale of it being, you know, quite big. And then we have a series of chapters, and I hope I don't forget any, but it begins with Zachary Stein on, he calls it, this. it's about education. It's about, it's an it's extension of his book, but it's particularly about culture war and the need to what he calls disarm the pedagogical weaponry. The idea that since education is sort of happening now online and through tacit education and informal education through our phones and our iPads and so forth, um, the challenge is to really recognize this as a as the prevailing educational frontier and try to sort of shift it fundamentally and those who know Zach's work will he has a very broad view of education as a kind of uh, process of sort of autopoiesis by which a culture updates itself and if that breaks down the culture basically dies and starts to dysfunction as arguably is happening now and then I forget exactly the sequence but we also have there a chapter by Tom Murray on it's an interesting chapter about developmental psychology, but it's particularly about the relationship between simplicity and complexity. And it, it goes a bit beyond the old truism about simplicity on the other side of complexity being what we want. He's arguing that in all of this talk about complexification and developmental models and wanting to become more and more complex people for a more and more complex society, he's saying, hang on, there's a lot of this, a lot of what you need to achieve spiritually at least, is something more like simplicity of insight. And it's not as decomplexifying, it's releasing complexity rather than kind of building it. Then we have a chapter um, on the economy by uh, Lenny Rachel Anderson, the metamodern economy. And that's a very rich picture of the, the indigenous world, the pre-modern world, you know, indigenous sort of world before religion got to it roughly. Um, then pre-modern being the church and the and the early religions around the world, shaping the world theologically, theocratically sometimes, going on to a kind of modern industrial revolution, enlightenment, postmodern something more about um, globalization and the kind of the kind of the sort of late stages of, of capitalism, and all of those economies, and then the metamodern economy being being one that sort of looks into each of them deeply and says, which of these aspects do we really need? So we learn something about the seasons and cyclical farming from the, from the indigenous world, something about ritual maybe from the pre-modern world. I forget all of the examples, but she goes through these in some depth. And um, the title of it is, but do you have a vegetable garden? So in the context of all of this theorizing and meta-crisis here and meta-modern that, it's a very pertinent question, but do you have a vegetable garden? Are you actually growing life? Are you helping to replenish? Uh, so that's her chapter. Um, Shiva Tambachetti, who's a, a legal academic, legal scholar at London School of Economics, has a chapter on intellectual property in a metamodern context. And I was keen to include that. I mean, full disclosure, Shiva is my wife, and therefore this chapter didn't come about entirely by accident. Um, but nonetheless, it was a valuable. I was producing a book and sensing there's something missing here. And she's working in IP saying, I can't get my, my ideas to the right kind of audience because it's too academically niche. I said, well, look, here's a chance to reach a different audience. 
because we don't speak much about IP, Lehman, but it's all over the place once you see it. It's right at the moment, the north-south divide on vaccines. You know, people talking about vaccine passports in the north and dying in their droves in the south. It's almost entirely because of IP, because of who's allowed to produce the vaccine and who isn't. Not who can do it and who can't. It's more about where the IP demarcates who can do it and who can't. So once you understand IP as this kind of handmaiden of capitalism, uh, and once you realize that a lot of the metamodern story is about some kind of either radically reformed or completely transcended form of economy, um, you realize that one pathway to get there is to understand intellectual property better. And so her work is trying to sort of situate that question more clearly so that people can understand what IP does, uh, how it's right at the heart of the economy. Any economy you want to shift, you have to deal with the legality of that first. Any new ideas you have, who owns them? What, what, whether technology is a good or bad thing, well, who owns the IP? So this question really needs to come to the surface and that chapter helps us to do that. Um, now I may have missed one, but I think I'll check again in a minute. Oh yeah, there's a, towards, I think, I think the next chapter might be, if I'm not mistaken, and I could just check the book, I suppose, since it's right here. Um, we have, um, yeah, so a big chapter by, um, uh, it's just before that, actually, by Daniel Gortz, no less. I've forgotten, of course. Uh, it's actually by Hansi. So here I have to make an apology to Hansi and to Daniel and to Emil, because we just, we're a new publisher and you learn a lot along the way. As you know, Lehman, it's taken a while to get here. Um, just a big learning curve to produce books and sell, sell them. And the other side of the book, the, the back office, the kind of distribution channels and the, the, all of the production challenges and the covers and the printing and all that. Um, it's just been a lot to learn. And along the way, a few mistakes crept in. One of them was that we were due to have a chapter by Hansi Freinacht with an introduction by Daniel Gortz. But somewhere along the way with a typesetter here and a copy editor there, the chapter was written by Daniel Gortz and not Hansi. Um, and that was a mistake. It was meant to be a chapter by Hansi. Anyway, the chapter is by Hansi now, and I can tell you that, even though it's written as being by Daniel in the book. That's about metamodern sociology. So that's both an invitation to sociologists to think in a metamodern way and an invitation to metamodern people broadly conceived to think more sociologically. And in there, Daniel gives a really helpful overview of six ways that metamodernism is used as a term that are quite different from the five I gave you. They're, they're more sort of thematic and less kind of cultural than I, the way I gave it. Um, yeah, so then um, that's a really important chapter though. It's, that, it's sort of moving along the story of, of, uh, from, from all of the books that they've written. And then Sarah Stein Lubrano, a young Oxford scholar, PhD student at Oxford, uh, political theorist mostly. She writes about cognitive dissonance, about the relationship between understanding and agency and the challenge of the, the, the problem when you don't really understand something, we often think that's a sort of great invitation to public life that you should somehow thereby be interested in political engagement to understand better. But she's saying no, that the feeling of not understanding or of noticing that where the argument's going is so far from where you thought you were, is so uncomfortable that it actually undermines agency. And so the overall question of her chapter is, how do you get more people involved in political life when the experience of dissonance is so strong? And then that's sort of part two. So that sort of lays out some of the main domains of places in which the metamodern impulse is felt, where people are trying to think 
across domains, but also looking at the inner life of people. Part three, we call New Frontiers. And there we have, um, well, five chapters. So I can keep going or you can, you can, you can help me out. Please keep going. <laughs> okay, quick. Okay. Right, so we kick off with Manifesting Mass Metanoia, Doing Change in Trying Times by Brent Cooper. This is the kind of, a kind of um, quasi-evangelical, uh, in some ways, um, piece. It's written in a very um, high-octane manner, really, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at large kind of spirit. It's like, what are you waiting for? Like, the world is falling apart. He brings in many different theorists, and I don't think he's coming from a theological perspective as such. He's coming from a mostly sort of new left sociological perspective. But the tenor it's written in is very rousing and it's very much about, you know, there's not, there's no time to lose. That's, you know, we need sort of mass meta change of mind at scale uh, now. And it's, it's a good read. It's really worth looking into. And um, then a much more academic chapter, a much more, you know, it, this is, this is like a, all of the chapters have a certain personality and this one is very dense, but richly dense. I mean, it's uh, very important work by John Vervecki and Christopher Mastro uh, Pietro. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's about dialogos, this idea that somehow deeper than dialogue, there's a kind of participatory form of speech that is two-person, sometimes called second-person, but it's about the kind of quasi-mystical emergent properties that arise when you get the right kind of engagement in a conversation and how this is actually a valid epistemic way of knowing. It's not just a kind of conversational nice to have, but there is some kind of rekindling of dialogues happening around the world through people talking more deeply and longer in a way that's giving life to new knowledge. And then we have uh, Identity Erotics by Mina Salami, who's a kind of black feminist writer and an associate of Perspectiva. She's got a very curious idea about identity being a kind of commons phenomenon. So just as you speak of like the economic commons and sometimes the attentional commons you've heard, she thinks like identity is something we can sort of dip into almost as a commons. And it's a way of thinking about identity that gets us beyond identity politics. So it's a kind of meta-modern view of what identity is and how we might, you know, on the one hand, one hand not get hung up about it because identity can be a real kind of trap, but somehow get beyond it, uh, you know, not even beyond it, to hold it in the right way, let's say. Um, and then a very interesting chapter, which is broadly theological by a current uh, priest who's also a philosopher and a psychologist, Jonathan Young, and Mark Vernon, who uh, used to be an Anglican priest and is also a psychotherapist and a philosopher. And they were speaking on committed uncertainty. They're the two who are probably least interested in metamodernism at the start of the book. That I sort of said, look, this is what we're writing about. How does it look to you? And they, they have their own dialogue about what it is to know something today and, and what it is like not to be sure of things. And in that context, what purpose does metamodernism serve? And it's a dialogue format and very worth following. And then finally, last, but by absolutely no means least, we have the great Lehman Pascal. And maybe since you're here, you could tell us what that's about. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting chapter. It tries to, on the one hand, recapitulate some of the book and, and provide a book into the series and a launching point to what future discussions might be. But the content is 
around the personal and the sociological move toward integration. And I, I sort of frame it as a metamodern spirit, right? What is, what is spiritual in the individual and what is religion like in the collective? And how do both of those moves reflect something that's at the heart of all the metamodern takes, which is how we increase our appreciation of diversity and the spaces between diverse perspectives that we can then leverage in order to create a, a more unified, more comprehensive meta perspective. And there's something in the architecture of that move that I think is key to articulating a spirit-like and a religion-like social phenomenon and personal phenomenon in a way that is up to the level of metamodern thinking rather than falling back to a pre-modern sort of notion. And I think there's we're seeing at the end of the volume is something like spirit, meaning both your internal practices and the way that we generate a mood and a movement in the culture where we have the motivation and the energy and the sense of uh, some excessive sacred potential that's worth mobilizing to save the world. I think that's that's a really key step that this has to move forward towards. Great. And it's... Uh... I remember really enjoying reading it, you know, when I got the the early draft and um, yeah, it does end very well because it speaks of Renaissance, right? You're, you're speaking of a kind of Renaissance yeah. that only a Renaissance can solve a meta crisis, as you put it. Um, yeah. So that's the book. I mean, it's, um, it's a tome, you know, it's a, it's a lot of different authors coming from, either academic or broadly scholarly perspectives. And it's quite diverse epistemically uh, in its orientation. And not all of the authors would sort of be card-carrying metamodernists, myself included. Um, but, but there's something about grappling with the spirit of the time. And as you know, there's a preface where I try to write about my own sort of adopting of metamodernism, somewhat reluctantly almost. But over time, becoming to identify with it a little bit, because what's going on in some ways is we're not really through with modernism yet or modernity, and this distinction between them could could detain us. But it's worth just noting. Um, it, you know, there are people who write great spiritual um, prophecies, maybe Aurobindo or Tilar de Chardin or Corbin or. I don't know, um, Jeremy Johnson even, or Lehman Pascal, but very, you know, even Mark Vernon, but various people, they're all male so far, so I better work on that. But but um, various people who have, a, even, you know, there are many people, Benito Roy would be one of them in this context, who can sort of see a world that's very different from this one, this world of, you know, terraced houses and supermarket checkout aisles and, um cars that run on gasoline and um, jobs that you go to from nine to five, that's already kind of breaking down, right? And metamodernism, the reason I think, and I say this in the introduction for the preface, I think the best way to understand the term, it's quite important to actually just like be precise about the language. It's that the meta in metamodernism, the reason it's valuable is it's about our subjective relationship to modernity. So it's about the fact that it's not just a, a sort of chronological view of time in which you have pre-modernity, modernity, post-modernity, post metamodernity. I don't see it that way at all. It's much more like you get to a stage of history about 20 years after the internet, give or take, 
where the world is aware of itself in an entirely new way. And through our access to knowledge and forms of practice and online lectures and courses and YouTube videos, we suddenly have all these you know, technologies for interior development as well available to us. So to be meta in that context is sort of to situate ourselves outside of the tram lines of apparent progress um, in which history just keeps on doing its thing and one thing leads to another inexorably, if not always for the better. And so it's like taking stock of that relationship. Meta-modernity is not so much chronological time of one thing after the other, but more like a kind of chirological time. It's, it's the time for us to take stock of where we are, given that modernity hasn't delivered on its promises, that we are looking at runaway climate change in our own lifetimes, that the sea is on fire, that there is plastic in our blood, you know, that our governments can't be trusted and are often corrupt. And yet, and yet, we live blissful, blessed lives for the large part with wonderful, tasty food and beautiful sunsets. And, you know, it's not that it's all falling apart. It's precisely that it's both beautiful, sublime and precious and dysfunctional, corrupt and falling apart that you have this kind of metamodern sensibility of living both those things coextensively, simultaneously. Um, and that's why the, the book is really an attempt to grapple with all of that, that sense of what's worth protecting and saving, what's worth renewing, what's worth letting go. And that's why I think the term meta and metamodernity is quite useful. Um, it has many meanings, as I say, it's sometimes between, it's sometimes after, it's sometimes beyond. But it's always about this relationality. It's like, it's not taking modernity for granted. It's not being subject to it anymore, but having it as object in, in Keegan's terms. So um, yeah, that's, that's why the book's there, I think, um, to help people with that grappling. Yeah, nicely said. I think that uh, the uncanniness of what you just described, right, of uh, seeing more and more deeply and more richly what the uh, trend lines of modernity are still bringing to pass in the world in terms of disturbing everything and putting us at extreme risk. And yet we continue to be and we continue to have access to enormous ranges of coherence and meaning and joy that we're crashing and have not crashed. <laughs> that there's a the grasping and grappling with that uncanniness seems to be something that all of those different streams of the meaning of metamodernism have in common, I think. Yeah, I think this is why I think it is the philosophy for the time between worlds. I think that's the way to understand the title of the book uh, in some ways. It's when you're between worlds, when one thing is still with us, but clearly not with us forever, and something is emerging, but we don't quite know what it is, and it has to be fought for and not just merely waited for. And whatever it is will not be monolithic or singular or without contestation. It will be plural and contested and divergent in various ways. And we're living in a time where China and Russia, Russia may not be part of this conversation and Africa has its own ideas. And you know, none of this is seamless historical linear um, unfolding, um, but it is something about that grappling with yeah, uncanniness is one word for it. Um, I, I, I begin the essay on, in the preface saying that I had mixed feelings about metamodernism until I realized it was about mixed feelings. Mm. 
that actually this kind of, uh, you know, truthful, truthful irony or sincere irony, this kind of sense of being aware of parts and wholes always being co-present, which of course is an integral, you know, whole on kind of view. This idea of things being both very serious and yet kind of absurd and comical as well. Um, and feeling those, you know, being both tragic and yet still somehow precious and, and not yet tragic. These things somehow being all, of, all, of, all at the same time felt. And having to make sense of your life in that context and, and your job and what meaningful work looks like. And, you know, I think it was, uh, I know it was uh, Lyotard, I think it was, who said that the postmodern condition was characterized by incredulity towards meta-narratives, meta right? And that, that I find that useful in the, in the context of asking what is, what is the meta-modern time incredulous towards? That's one way of asking. Because it's not meta-narratives as such. Now it's more like a kind of chumminess with meta-narratives. It's more like a kind of, yeah, well, I know you're not the whole truth, but I kind of like you anyway and I could play with you. It's, not, it's no longer like, you don't explain everything because we know they don't. Of course they don't. But we're still like, but you might be quite a good attempt to explain everything and we can get something out of you and put you, put you together with another meta-narrative that might have something going on. But no, I think what, the, what we feel incredulous towards now is various things, but one is um, action plans. You know, there's an incredulity towards here's, here's a plan to save the world. Doesn't quite add up. There's also an incredulity towards despair, I think, because look, this is the world as we find it. Um, you have to make the best of it. I think there's some natural incredulity as well towards kind of inauthentic advocacy. I mean, I certainly feel mm. this today that there's a lot of we must do X, Y, and Z without any reflection on the we and the I's implication in that we, otherwise, you know, complicity, if you like. And by that, I mean, the, the, the we that you want to act is not the we that you have any control over half the time. And it may not even exist. It may be an entirely imagined community. And even the eye is fragmented as hell, you know. So there's something about incredulity towards even conventional language, which is why there's new forms like dialogos and metacrisis and so forth appearing, metamodernism for that matter. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question of what is metamodernism incredulous towards, right? And I think in some respects, it's an extension of postmodern incredulity to a kind of dialectical form where it's simultaneously incredulous toward opposites. Like I think it's deeply, it has deep incredulity towards aspirational rhetoric, but right. equally deep incredulity towards cynicism. Right. Right. Well put. Yes. And I think another thing that is, it strikes me that it's incredulous relative to um, the categories that we use to organize the world. Like it'd be a very common thing in metamodernism to go, well, what do you really mean by the left and the right exactly? Are, are those even the ways to think about this? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, as you know, I do that all the time, but yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's incredulity towards conventional categories, certainly. But it's also, you know, there's also, a, like you say, there's something a bit more going on because it's, incredul it's incredulous towards sort of knowing critique as well. You know, the, the, the classic postmodern define your terms or historicize this or sociologize, sociologize whatever that is, that. By, that. by that, I mean the critique that says, here's a bunch of context that shows why what you just said isn't the whole truth or isn't even partially true. 
it's like, well, okay, but then tell me what we should do. You know, what do you want to do about nuclear hurricanes coming to a town and it's, you know, anytime soon, for, you know, near you? Um, what do you want to do about fire in the ocean? You know, is Greta Thunberg wrong to say that we're deluded and should be ashamed of ourselves? And yet, how do we act at that level, at that scale? We don't seem to have a pathway from our understanding of the problems to our agency that's straightforward. I feel we're in the process of building that now, maybe. Uh, and I think part of what the book is about is some early steps towards that. It's like our sensibility, our, our metamodal sensibility of, okay, here's my sense of what's going on. Here's what I feel is not yet sort of metamodern institutional structure of combining somehow the digital with the city, with the, sorry, the, the urban with the rural in a way that leads to an effective we that can actually act. Um, and a we that's, you know, it's not going to be post-political yet, right? There's going to be a countervailing we that wants to stop you acting. So there's a lot of confusion. And um, it's like, how do you act in the context of that confusion, not let it sort of derail you? Uh, try to be clearer where you can be. But that's that. the metamodern impulse is, like you say, once you get beyond those categories, like even like the economy, when people say the economy is doing well, I'm like, well, what does that mean? You know, like to find the economy and what is money even today? And um, what are the boundaries of the economy? And, you know, you can wax lyrical theoretically till the cows come home, but that's not what it is. It's not just postmodern problematizing. It's something more about the felt experience of language not doing justice to our sense of what's meaningful or what's going on. Um, and that means building new cultural categories, new conceptual resources, new practices, both relational and personal. Um, and people are doing that. You know, there's, there's dialogists I've mentioned, there's the anti-debate, there's Lena's vegetable garden. You know, there's lots of little signs of, uh, you know, Hansi has his political template for different kinds of politics. Zach has his vision of education renewed at scale. It's not as though people are not thinking how this might work institutionally. They are. It's just that we're quite at, an, at quite an early stage. Um, yeah, that's part of where my thinking around the quote unquote spirituality and religion aspects of it come in, which is we have a lot of projects. And we have a lot of people that are seeing solutions. And what we might be lacking is the personal integration and mobilization and the collective sense of being energized enough to actually implement these things. And, you know, and the faith enough to take a risk and what does faith mean in this kind of a context. But we have a lot of the tools at our disposal. We're just not sure how we really uh, bring that forward. So that's part of what this book is focusing on. Now, yeah. I know that, yeah, uh, I was going to say that um, I know that your appreciation of what metamodern is and is has deepened over the course of working on this volume. That's been true for me as well. But um in that personal sense, I'm curious what else has changed for you? Like, um, how do you think differently at this end of the book, having completed it from how you were thinking at the beginning? What kind of journey has this been for you? Well, it has been quite a long journey. That's the first adjective I'd use. I think approximately three years from inception to completion. And a lot of the chapters came in quite early and then took a while to be read and edited and returned and and then there was a big production process. But in terms of throughout that, how things were moving for me, 
Well, it's a, it's a really deep question and a difficult one to answer. A lot's been going on for me. When you say we have a lot of the ideas and a lot of the suggestions for how to implement them at the sort of practice level of training and the institution level of sort of maybe organizational change or policy influence or whatever that may be. Uh, that's true. And I think though that the way I see Perspectiva's work is there's a level above that, which is something like the social imaginary or the sacred canopy or the collective consciousness or default reality or all these different terms to capture our prevailing sense of what is normal, right? And the reason I mentioned that is that when I describe my work or this book to people, educated people working in sort of the world as it's known today. So I spoke to someone yesterday who works on organized crime and fraud. He's a lawyer. Uh, and I spoke to someone a few days ago who's a teacher and someone else who's a translator and uh, a GP, uh, like a doctor. And when I've been trying to convey what I do, they, they're intrigued and they can't quite believe the people thinking in this kind of level of abstraction, what is to them very abstract. But again, incredulity to me, it's like, well, we have to rebuild something new because otherwise it's just kind of civilizational train crash that nothing's gonna stop unless we shift the code, shift the generator function, change the, the life energy that is at the root of things. And so what's shifted for me is still, still keen to work at that level, but somehow, I want to, you know, wanting to embody it a bit more. Like I, I, I can't say that I do, you know, I, I would, I would fail my own test on this in that to fully realize life in this context would be, okay, I've created an institution. I'm trying to lead uh, intellectually in a certain sense. I've even created certain forms of practice at the organizational level that, you know, we have this anti-debate program. We're working with metaphor in various ways. One of my colleagues is an improviser, another one who works with consolations therapy. We're thinking of how to combine these things. It's not as though we're not trying, but the, the gap between where we are and what we can influence and the scale of the collective problems is so vast that I do catch myself in moments of utter imposter syndrome. You know, it's just like, yeah. it sounds great, but you're kidding yourself, right? Um, now, do I feel that any less because this book is out? Slightly. I feel slightly less like that because by creating a book and building a community around it and bringing it out into the world to a slightly wider community that may itself bring it to a somewhat bigger community. And by the way, um, alongside that book, I should just briefly say there are four others here. Um, so Perspectiva brought out four other books at the same time, but I won't derail us now, but they're also on the website. But this process of, of, publishing books, it doesn't begin and end there because there's a limit to what text can do. You know, as my colleague Evo put it, you're not going to change the world by throwing more words at it. You know, it has enough words already. There's something in that. And yet, what are you to do, right? Um, are you to take to the streets with your banner? Are you to create another organization? We don't, you know, are you to change your own habits and model your behavior for your neighbors? You know, even in a community where that will look utterly odd. Am I to never fly again? Like what is, you know, what exactly is the injunction? I don't know. I suppose at the end of this book, I feel somewhat less 
in need of pretending to know because I realize I'm not alone in, in, in once, both wanting and reaching for something resembling new ways of living, new ways of organizing, cultural renewal, what Schmachtenberg, Daniel Schmachtenberg calls cultural enlightenment even. You know, seeking that genuinely, but also feeling a bit like I don't really believe it, like I don't I find it hard to believe it will happen, that I watch the news and think, this, these two things are not of the same world. And yet there are moments where they come a bit closer together. And publishing this book was one of them, where you feel like here's something I can give people. And if they have the time and the inclination, they might just start thinking a bit more deeply and go back to their day job and do something different. So in the next few years, assuming you aren't struck dead and the oceans aren't completely engulfed in flames, what's your vision for what the next volume in this series looks like? My idea was that these dispatches books, if it goes really well, they'll come out every year, but it, I don't want to overpromise that. It might be more like one, um, one every year and a half or so because they take time just for, there's a lot of people, a lot of people to get involved and then that process takes time. I think I want to do something about, and I don't even know how to say it without feeling I'm making a mistake already, but I want to do something about the feminine or or the feminine intellect, or the feminine beyond feminism, or I'm trying to get at this idea that is not really for me to get at. And I think when we choose the editors, you know, you and I may have some oversight as we did with the last one, but uh, I want to give a lot of the autonomy, autonomy, you know, the creative agency to women for obvious reasons. And what I want to understand is when people like, Richard Tarnas say that cultural renewal will come from a sort of revival of the feminine or a sort of reintegration of masculine and feminine in some way. I sort of know what he means. Like I feel intuitively like, yes. And I know that partly as a father who has observed now at close quarters, the kind of work that takes place in a family and in families coming together to help with core domestic and sort of local community tasks that sort of side of private life I know better and that's not all that's going on I'm also a perspective where we work with a lot of female authors and, and academics and activists and so I, I sense there is a way of knowing right there isn't just a single feminine way of knowing of course it's a plural contested space but I think there's something about the feminine in a time between worlds that I think might well be a working title. And of course the definite article will be critique because it's probably not just the feminine, but many. Um, but I am intrigued by what is there to say about, you know, if it's, is it yin to yang? I don't know, it's more than that. Is it soft power as opposed to hard power? It's more than that. Is it a new kind of feminism? I don't think so. Is it something about realizing that the real feminine is not soft and yielding? but actually quite assertive in its own way. It's just that in a somewhat different way. Is it something about masculinity needing to observe and not participate for a while? I don't know, but I feel as though that's where the energy is at the moment. Yeah, I like that. The question of what we mean by the feminine when we say that the feminine is a key part of the solution. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really interesting question to try to 
not resolve, but probe into at the scale of thinking that we've been well, using in these other areas. So I'm um, so, looking forward to participating in that a little. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I, I, I hope you I hope you will. And, and likewise, um, I, I wanted to say that uh, we had a somewhat ridiculous idea as a brainstorming device for this book. If we do proceed with that, it's, um, you know, the concept of mansplaining. I don't know if you have it in North America, but, yeah. you know, a lot of people are complaining about mansplaining. There's also femsplaining for what it's worth, but mansplaining is particularly common and bad. But we had this idea of having a kind of comedy night, a perspective of comedy night, where we would have men on stage trying to explain to an all-female audience what the feminine is. And we'd have women sort of throwing to, <laughs> throwing tomatoes and like, you know, like, you know, like, okay, my take on the feminine is, and they would sort of buzz you off or you'd go into a hatch and fall down the hole or whatever. So, but we haven't quite mastered that event and it might not be quite the right spirit, but the idea was that, look, we have a stake in this too. Uh, there's a lot of genuine un desire to understand it because we have our own feminine, of course. Right. I mean, that's, that's a big part of the story. We don't, it, it, in many ways, it's about getting beyond the man-woman, male-female divide and all of the other um, non-binary qualifications within that. But trying to get at the, you know, just an understanding of what, what we might mean by feminine and why, why it might matter in this context, not in some abstract sense, but in this historical moment. Yeah, I've been doing a podcast series of interviews on sexuality and you know, there's a lot of therapists, there's a lot of tantric teachers, there's a lot of couples and things like that. And I would say probably 60 to 70% of them still really strongly feel like the yin yang framing in an enriched sense is very useful. Uh, and then about 30% of them feel like uh, just that the whole duality of it's got to be completely broken apart and doesn't really apply anymore. So all of that all together. <laughs> <laughs> is a really yeah, interesting right. invitation. Yeah, that's, so that's um, that's probably what happens next. But I mean, uh, I, I need a few, at least a few weeks to digest this book and <laughs> get out, get out into the world. I think it'll be maybe you know autumn until we really get going on the other one. Yeah, for sure. Well, this has been uh, fantastic. Nice to talk with you as usual. Nice to have worked with you on this. I well, like the way you. your mind works, and like you, I hope that this book does something useful in the world <laughs> yeah me too me too and um just here one more time and as you can see for those who don't know layman was you know the co-editor of this book and there was a lot of work along the way with uh, you know great authors but authors who sometimes needed reminding and something needed needing editing or suggest things suggested to them so um thanks to all the authors as well there's many of them and they've all been very patient so yeah i'm also very grateful that it's that.